The first reading is from Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel reading is taken from Mark, chapter 1, verses 4 to 11. And so John came, baptising in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Israel, all the people of Jerusalem, went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the River Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt round his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and unite. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. This is the Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Good morning. My name is Christopher Bryan. I'm the Archdeacon of Malmesbury, and it's a privilege to be preaching this morning. I'd love to have been with you physically, but unfortunately, because we have a son who's clinically extremely vulnerable, a transplant recipient and oxygen dependent, the risks with this new variant of the virus are too great. So thanks to the uh, wonders of technology, I am at least with you and able to preach and I very much hope I'll be able to visit at some point in the not too distant future. As we begin, let's pray. Lord, take my human words and use them to unfold your written word, that we may behold your living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. A New Year's resolution is something that goes in one year and out the other. I wonder where you are with yours. Does that seem a long time ago now? Or maybe you don't even bother. Yet I think there's something quite profound underlying the New Year's resolution, the human longing to be better, better in any one of a hundred different ways, fitter, happier, healthy, more productive, easier to live with, whatever. It's a sign of an imagination that things could be different in our lives and an effort to make that change. The New Year's resolution is annual hopefulness. Surely, as Christians, we'd want to say that that desire to be better is a good thing. 
but doing it in our own strength can only get us so far, as Mark Twain said. I don't know why people say it's so hard to quit smoking. I've done it hundreds of times myself. Making a real, lasting behavioural change is not at all easy. Doing it in our own strength is very hard, but the power of the Holy Spirit can make a real difference. God works with us to make change possible. Take as, a, as an example the Alcoholics Anonymous programme, which is pretty good at helping people in a serious fix, and several of their 12 steps recognise the importance of depending on a greater power, or God. This is something they do, not so much because they hold a pre-existing theology, but from a recognition that it works. And Christians might also ask, why do you want to make a particular resolution? What is it that's driving you? And is that driving force healthy or a problem? For instance, if someone wants to go on a diet because they cannot accept themselves as they are, then they need to hear that God loves them as they are. Often, though, it's a case of knowing that God loves us as we are, but also that he loves us and those around us too much to allow us to keep on being grumpy or doing that bad habit. The desire to be different, the hope of becoming a better person, and that acceptance that we need God's transforming power to do so, lie at the heart of today's Gospel reading. We need to make a few imaginative leaps to enter into the Gospel. We need to leave behind sodden, frosty England, where we have too much water, and imagine what it's like in dry, dusty Palestine, where water is a precious, life-giving resource, refreshment at the end of a long journey, where baptism is very clearly about life. The second thing we need to remember is that the people who responded to John the Baptist really believed that God was about to arrive any moment, they expected God to intervene very soon. The God revealed in the Old Testament who had parted the Red Sea, defeated the Egyptians and the Philistines, the God who had worked miracles and raised the dead, was going to do it once more. The Old Testament told them that God will put the world to rights, that he will judge and destroy evil, that things will never be the same again. And Mark's Gospel begins with the good news that God is coming. And this isn't some kind of general belief about some far-off, indeterminate point in the future. One day, over the rainbow, it'll all be fine. No. They believed that God was going to act very soon. There's an expectation of the Messiah in the next few months. So they got ready. I wonder, what would you do if you knew God was coming? on the 15th of February, say. It's a thrilling, thrilling prospect. God with us. The current crises healed. Restoration and renewal. And at the same time, I'd want to be sure of being in the right place spiritually, ready when he comes. I'd want to make sure that my life was sorted out, that I was living by his grace and forgiveness, so I wouldn't be swept away with evildoers. And that's where they were coming from. And when you think about it, it's perfectly logical. John the Baptist preached the coming of God's kingdom, and he was right, because verse 11 says God did come in Jesus. Our situation is not as different as we might think. 
The Bible tells us that Jesus will come again in heavenly glory, which could be any time. And of course, there's not that much difference between God coming to us and us going to God when our time comes. Who knows when that will be? So it makes sense to be prepared. But that raises the question of how. Many of those people who came to John were religious people. They had been trying hard for all their lives to keep the Old Testament law, doing their best to obey God and be good. And yet when it came to the crunch, they found that didn't give the certainty that they needed. Maybe they knew their own failings. Maybe there were things they'd done that needed to be forgiven. Um, they probably also had the spiritual sense to realise that trusting in God's mercy is a far more reliable option than trusting in your own efforts. And so they prepared for God's coming, not by a kind of frantic charging around, but by repentance, humility and casting themselves on his forgiveness, all summed up in verse five by the dramatic self-emptying symbol of baptism, of being dunked under the water, dying to an old way of life and emerging again into a new beginning, cleansed, refreshed, forgiven, healed. And two things really strike me about the way John baptised. Firstly, it was public in a huge crowd. Verse 5 says they were baptised in the Jordan, confessing their sins. I wonder how specific they got. Understandably, nowadays, uh, some families who want a baby baptised will get a bit shy about making the promises in front of a full church. Some ask for a private event. Occasionally congregations feel a bit overwhelmed by crowds of friends and family and wonder if baptisms might be better out of the main service. But baptism, whether for an infant or a teenager or an adult, should be public. It's nailing your colours to the mast, affirming what you believe and declaring that you build your life on the rock of Christ. So baptisms should be when all can hear. And it means a lot that the congregation is there to support the candidates and the family. If we look beyond baptism, it can be helpful for mature Christians to be accountable to one another in a similar way, to share in small groups or with a supportive spouse or friend the things that challenge us, the parts of life we'd like to change so that others can support and ask how it's going with the resolutions we've made. The second striking thing is how humble people had to be Rich Sadducees and poor farmers waded into the Jordan side by side. Voluptuous prostitutes and weaselly tax collectors admitted their need of God together. Big brawny soldiers were humbly dunked under the water. However grand someone's place in life, they look similarly undignified when wet and muddy in the middle of a stream. Baptism is a great leveller. And yet, as we grow in the Christian life, status, position and the contribution you make can seem to creep back in. It's so important that we remind ourselves frequently of God's grace and our need of him. That's why we usually have a confession in our services. That's why as a baptism service, the congregation may join in with the promises. So we remember that they apply to us too. So we've thought about the people coming to baptism but there's a problem, isn't there, here? What's Jesus doing being baptised? All I've talked about so far is about people who needed to turn away from the things they'd done wrong, people who needed to be forgiven, to be cleansed. So why is the Holy One of God submitting to a ritual of repentance? 
If, as the New Testament clearly teaches, Jesus is without sin, why does he want to be baptised? In Matthew's Gospel, um, John the Baptist addresses the question head on. Why are you coming to me? I need to be baptised by you and yet you're coming to me. But Jesus says, let's do this in order to fulfil all righteousness. It's the right thing to do. I suppose it's like um, as if you were giving a lecture on the life's work of David Attenborough and you find that the great man is in the audience. Now, if that was me, I'd say, well, come on, I'll, I'll shut up. Come on, David, come to the front, take over. We'll listen to you. You've got much more interesting things to say. And imagine if Attenborough then says, no, no, it's all right. I'd, I'd really like to hear your tips on how to make a wildlife documentary. It's that bizarre. So why is this happening? It's because Jesus identifies with us. It's because Jesus takes on everything that it means to be human so that he can save us. Jesus is baptised as if he were a sinner. Just like at the end of his earthly life, he dies on the cross as if he were a criminal. Although he did no wrong, Jesus submitted to the consequences of human sin as if he himself were responsible. That's the amazing mystery of the cross, isn't it? That Jesus, who is innocent, takes on himself the penalty and burden of human sin so that it can be destroyed in him and we can be forgiven and go free. In the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, the sinless one becomes sin for us. The innocent one stands in our place and takes the penalty so that we can go free. Throughout Jesus' life, there are signs of this, and being baptised is one of them. He identifies with and saves sinners. For Jesus, being baptised was not about turning from a bad life towards a good one. It was about committing himself to God's will, a path that would lead him to the cross. God the Father recognises and affirms this dedication. God sends the Holy Spirit to bless Jesus and empower him. The Holy Spirit comes on the sinless Christ, not as a purifying fire, but as a gentle dove of peace. It's often God's way. In our own lives, a greater acceptance of God's direction, a yielding to his will, often results in a deeper feeling with the Holy Spirit, which enables someone to serve and live for God and others. That is a kind of resolution, but it's a resolution to live God's way. I started by thinking about the New Year's resolution, and that's where I'll end. Those annual attempts to do better can point us to a deeper truth that a real personal transformation can happen through the power of God. That change will begin to happen when we are humble and acknowledge our need, when we ask for God's forgiveness and for the Holy Spirit to fill us so that we can be what we should be. Wholeness and growth will happen as we depend on Christ, who identified with us and was baptised for us. So if you want to change, then great. But don't try to do it in your own strength. Turn from sin. Turn to Christ. Ask to be filled with his spirit and let his power transform you.
Lord Jesus, you know our hearts, you know our need of you. As we seek to be transformed and changed, fill us with your spirit, that we may know your love and your power. Amen. <laughs>